Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu slash JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tallis. This week on Gangry the Podcast, we talk with Kelly Benham French of the Tampa Bay Times. Back in December, the newspaper published Benham's three-part series, Never Let Go. The series is about micropremies, or babies born at 24 weeks or earlier. What makes this series stand out is the fact that Benham tells the story in the first person. That's because she gave birth to a baby at 23 weeks, 6 days. That little girl weighed 1 pound, 4 ounces. Benham and her husband, the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Tom French, faced impossible questions throughout the ordeal. Among them, was the dream of a healthy baby too much to ask for? And is the cost of saving her too high? If the answer to those two questions was yes, they wondered if they would have the strength to let her go. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. It's great uh, to be here. Can we start by having you read uh, a section of your story? Sure, sure. That'd be great. Tom wheeled me to her plastic box. The nurse introduced herself as Gwen, but I barely heard her. There, through the clear plastic, was my daughter. She was red and angular, angry like a fresh wound. She had a black eye and bruises on her body. Tubes snaked out of her mouth, her belly button, her hand. Wires moored her to monitors, tape obscured her face. Her chin was long and narrow, her mouth agape because of the tubes. Dried blood crusted the corner of her mouth and the top of her diaper. The diaper was smaller than a playing card and it swallowed her. She had no body fat, so she resembled a shrunken old man missing his teeth. Her skin was nearly translucent, and through her chest I could see her flickering heart. She kicked and jerked. She stretched her arms wide, palms open, as if in welcome or surrender. I recognized her. I knew the shape of her head and the curve of her butt. I knew the strength of her kick. I knew how she had fit inside of me, and I felt an acute sensation that she had been cut out and how wrong that was. I had crazy thoughts. Did we prepare a birth announcement? Would we name her? If she died, would she get a birth certificate? Would there be a funeral? Would we get a box of ashes? And if so, what size box? Was she aware of us? Did she recognize me like I recognized her? Was she afraid? Did she wonder where I'd gone? If she ever got out of this box, would she know I was her mother? She was alien and familiar. She was terrifying and beautiful. She was complete and interrupted. I felt the icy hush that comes with looking at a secret you are not meant to see. I was peeking into God's pocket. Thanks for reading that. I, that's such a, a moving section. Uh, the entire the entire series is just so beautiful and, and harrowing at the same time. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, I, I've been a big fan of, of your reporting and your writing for, for quite a while, but what, when did you decide, when did you know that you were going to write about this, something so personal? I really didn't know until um, after the baby was home from the hospital. Um, she was born in April and she came home at the end of October. And, um, you know, my husband Tom and I, were both writers and we see everything 
through the frame of story. So between the two of us, obviously we knew that we were living in an incredible story. And from time to time, we even talked about it as as we were in the hospital. But I couldn't, neither of us could really think about writing it because we were just trying to survive it. And honestly, we had no expectation that it would have a happy ending. And a story like this demands a happy ending. But it was really all we could do just to be parents in that situation. But after she got, she was out and she got home, it became pretty clear to both of us that we had to write about it. Uh, I, I noticed you, were, you, you looked like you were getting a little choked up. Did that section that you read do that to you? No, I, I, it's kind of, I've read it so many times, it's a little bit of a piece of writing to me, but there are moments from the hospital that when I think about, I can get, I can get myself pretty worked up. (laughs) Is this, is this the first time that you've written strictly about yourself and and, and were you hesitant to do that? I've never written anything first person before, um, except like a, six-inch story I wrote when I DNA tested my dog. <laughs> I really have tried to avoid the first person at all costs. And so um, when I actually went to do it, it was quite difficult. What was, what was the most difficult part about it, about, about well, writing about yourself? Well, there was the, the emotional component of just trying to access um, – the memories, um, I, have, I have a pretty terrible memory. Um, and I, I counteracted that by just doing a ton of reporting, which we can talk about. Um, and then there was trying to like render it faithfully as it actually happened and not maybe as I wish it had happened and trying to capture the person that I was in those days and weeks and not the person that I wished I had been. Um, because some of that... I I was pretty depressed and about half crazy during a lot of that time. Um, and if I had just been writing this for my daughter, I might have um, glossed over some of that. Um, might have glossed over a little bit of how scared I was that I wouldn't connect with her. And the the many, many ways that I felt like I was failing her in the beginning that was really difficult. And then just as a piece of writing, there are a lot of challenges to writing in the first person that I hadn't predicted. Um, like the problem of omniscience, you know, I did reporting and I wanted to say not just what was going on from my perspective, but I wanted to tell the reader all the cool things I had learned that the doctors and nurses were thinking, but I couldn't be in all places at once and write in first person. So that became a huge challenge. Yeah, I th- I think one of the things that I like about this is I mean, there's so much first person writing out there, but so little of it is reported, um, yes. and this is so immaculately reported. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that process, uh, what that was like, um, what revelations it opened up to you. Uh, maybe you found out some things you had no idea you were going to learn. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I would love to. Um... I read a lot of memoir before I wrote this, um, a lot of stories of parents of other premature babies, and I found a lot of it unsatisfying because it was not reported. And I, I very much did not want to do 
something that would just feel like my diary. Um, I, I wanted to do something that was kind of part memoir and part like medical and science reporting. So I started with her um, just asking the hospital for her chart, which I thought would be a really simple thing until they wheeled it out on two giant carts and they were just piled with boxes and the chart turned out to be 7,000 pages. Um, so I had to organize that and actually hired a high school student to um, go through it for me and like tag it with post-it notes. <laughs> Um, but that gave a really basic chronology and timeline of events. And um, it didn't read like a narrative, but if you knew a date or a moment you were trying to reconstruct, you could reconstruct it out of the chart by going to like eight or nine different places. Because they charted everything from the expressions on the baby's face to what position she was in in the incubator to which nurses took care of her to whether Tom and I, I knew what time Tom and I signed in and out every day. Um, there was a lot of information in there. It was just a little bit hard to get to. And then um, I interviewed everybody that you know was essential to her care. There were more than 200 people named in the chart that took care of her over the six and a half months that she was there. So I interviewed as many as I could. And those interviews ended up going two and three hours, all of them, because there was just so much to talk about. And I would love to talk to those people even more, but I came to realize that two or three hours is about the limit that you can talk to somebody without them getting exhausted. Um, and so the interview started to become less useful after a couple of hours. Um, and then I called um, some sort of national experts in different areas, um, particularly bioethics and, um, and economics, because I wanted to write about um, the moral questions in the neonatal intensive care unit. I found them so fascinating, and I thought that I would spend more time on that. I just ran out of room, but there was a guy in Kansas City named John Lantos who I just think is brilliant, and he really just opened up my mind to a lot of these different questions and helped me see our experience in different ways. Um, and he pointed me to a lot of good research. I read a lot of journal articles, uh, dozens and dozens of journal articles on all of the 40 different conditions that my daughter was diagnosed with um, and read a bunch of books. And then I uh, called a couple of economists and statisticians and epidemiologists because there are so few babies born as young as Juniper was born or as early as she was born that it's very hard for a regular person or a journalist to find statistics that are applicable because most like the March of Dimes and groups like that looped, lumped together babies 28 weeks and below, but there's a huge difference between a 23-weeker and a 28-weeker. So a lot of those statistics weren't useful to me. So I had to get like birth certificate data and like a calculator <laughs> just to figure out how many babies um, are born after gestational age. So it was, it was like as much work as I've done on any story in my life. Um, and probably actually a lot more. What, what um, is this the longest? The, is this the longest story you have worked on? Yeah, it's the longest. It's the longest, and it's and it's the most reporting, and it's the highest word count. <laughs> yeah. How did um? I'm curious, especially because because you you're married to Tom. 
uh, French, who obviously has won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, did he help? Uh, how did he help in, in the writing process, or did he? Oh, God, I, I couldn't have done, I couldn't have even begun to do this without Tom. Um, I was just very fortunate to live with the person who probably knows more about writing a serial narrative for a newspaper than anybody in the country. Um, he was helpful, first of all, because he, um, he took a few notes in the hospital. And um, he kind of, I don't think he did that because we thought we would necessarily write about it. I think it was a defense mechanism for him. Like it was sort of an, it was protective emotionally to kind of go into professional mode. We were, you know, kind of taking notes for a continuity of her care. So a lot of it is like ventilator settings and, and stuff that you wouldn't necessarily use, but there are some gems in there. Um, I took notes on two occasions, like right after her surgery. And um, I think after I held her, um, but those notes ended up being really valuable. Um, he has really terrible handwriting though. So there's still a trove of notes that I have no idea what's in them. Um, and then when I went to write it, he, he's the structure guy. Like he's better at structure than anybody I know. And he really helped me figure out how to organize it. Um, I'm pretty good once I have my roadmap, I can, I can write pretty well and, um, but I struggle a lot figuring out where the pieces go. And he helped me, um, figure out like which scene to start day two with, which is the scene where I'm carrying the breast milk to the baby and I'm lost in the hallway. I mean, um, he helped me see my experiences in terms of scenes, which seems like a simple thing, but it was six and a half months. So your brain doesn't necessarily isolate out all those moments. Um, singing Johnny Cash to her. I wasn't thinking of that as a scene, but Tom helped me see that. Can you can you talk about? I, I guess what did you learn um, about writing a serial that maybe you didn't know before? Because obviously you have different things you have to take into account. I mean, you need to write it so the reader will come back the next day. Um, is there anything you learned doing that that maybe you didn't know before? I think the biggest thing I learned, and Tom had tried to prepare me for this, and Tom has been sort of preaching the gospel of the serial narrative as long as I've known him, but I wasn't prepared for how readers were going to react to it. Um, it's such a more powerful response than any single day story because it builds over the week. So it was incredibly rewarding to write and made me eager to do it again um, for the right story. In terms of the writing process, um, you have to think about endings and beginnings just as you would inside a one-day story. But um, in my case, I had six and a half months to write about, but I only had a few sort of cliffhangers because the last four months was just kind of a grinding, agonizing, tedious slog. It didn't have a lot of in highs and lows. So um, I had to really move quickly through a lot of that and do a lot of summarizing in day three. I, I could have probably written five parts, but I just didn't have the emotional um, sort of peaks I didn't feel like to get those last couple of days. And I thought the readers just wouldn't be able to stand it because <laughs> it, was, it was awful to live. I didn't really want to drag readers through it. But I, I wrote about 
you know, a couple of her more serious crises, there were, you know, five or at least a half a dozen other major crises that I didn't write about. Can you talk about some of the the phone calls you received, especially like, because uh, I think it started on a Sunday and then it went a couple of days without without the second part going, and then the second part ran, and then it was another couple of days, and then the third part ran. Uh, what were some of the phone calls that you were getting in that time? It was it was crazy. It ran Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday, and a couple of days ahead of that schedule online. Um, so. When the first day came out, like people were just sobbing into my email, like I mean, into my voicemail, and they were just demanding to know if the baby lived or died. And and, and they were some of them were really funny, like like they were ordering a pizza, like hi, um, I just need to know is the baby alive? If you could just give me that information, that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> and then there were other people that were like weeping and like really upset. And I had one person call and say. No, I'm bipolar and I just don't handle these things as well as other people. And I just, I need to know if that baby's alive. And, <laughs> um, and people were calling to um, ask, well, okay, what day do I have to buy the paper to get the next part? <laughs> just tell me which day of the week. Um, and then there was, of course, just some incredibly, many, many, many incredibly touching stories. Um of people who had had babies that were sick or babies that they lost or, um, you know, whenever I, I'm used to getting mail from stories, but almost every email I got was a couple pages long. They were all the sort of email that you have to respond to. People engaged with the story in a really deep way. Uh, it, it reminds me, especially with people calling in and wanting to know the ending uh, before it's run of a line that I think comes from Tom in the story, and that's that uh, stories are a promise that the end is worth waiting for, and people don't want to wait for the ending. Right. right. And people were Googling um, the baby and, and me, and I had tried to make everything as private as I could on Facebook, but there was a um, video that the hospital had done for their telethon that gave away the ending and people were Googling and then, and then posting in the comments on our newspaper website. Oh, it's, so oh, it's fine. The baby's okay. And so we had to go and kill those out and I had to ask people to, you know, if you know the ending, keep it to yourself. <laughs> oh, um, I, I, you, t- you talk a lot about, um, how, how you all read Harry Potter mm-hmm. uh, to Juniper, um, in the hospital. Um, was that just something that it was just a book that was laying out or, or how did that come about? Well, it was, it was the night that was so awful, um, when her intestine perforated and we came back to the house, um, maybe to grab something to eat. I don't, I'm not sure, but we, we were going back to the hospital and we were going to stay the night and Tom grabbed two books. One was Harry Potter and the other one was, um, I think it was like Henry V or something. It was Shakespeare. And I was like, really, dude? Like, what's wrong with Goodnight Moon? Well, that's a good book for a baby. <laughs> what about Go Dog Go? <laughs> um, I didn't really understand what he was doing there. Um, and when we got to the hospital, I think he realized that Shakespeare was probably a bit much. And he he's turned to the first chapter of Harry Potter. 
um, which this course is titled The Boy Who Lived. And I think that he, he needed to say those words to her and he needed to read that chapter to her. And he explained it to me later um, when he said, the story is a promise that the end is worth waiting for. Like he wanted to read her something that, that they could share over time. And as he was reading that story to her, he was connecting it to moments that he had had with his sons and the way that those books have drawn us together as a family. And we were indoctrinating her into our tribe by reading that story with her. So it was, it was much more than, um, it, it wasn't just coincidence that he picked up that book. Um, but I, I didn't understand it until much later. Can can we transition a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about um, about the Tampa Bay Times and, and what it what it's like to have a newspaper that I think values um, this type of reporting and this type of storytelling? Um, can you talk ab- about that a little bit and, and how much that meant in terms of being able to do this? Oh, I mean, the Tampa Bay Times is like. You know, it's like my church, you know, in a way. I just, I, it's a place that I really believe in. Um, people that I really love and respect. And they were amazing with me on this story. Um, my editor, Mike Wilson, is a, is a good friend. He was the best man at our wedding. He was there at the hospital the day our daughter almost died and we baptized her in the incubator. Um, so he knew what a powerful story this was, and the newspaper gave complete and unconditional support and granted every request I had. But that's kind of what I've come to expect from them. You know, I've edited other big projects for their own good with Ben Montgomery and um, Winter's Tale with John Barry. Um, as Enterprise Editor, we've done a lot of interesting work, and when the story is really good... I've just never been told no. Um, So it's just, it's not a perfect place. You know, it's a place that's going through hard times, but it's it's the best place I know of to try to do this kind of work. This this was the the first writing you've done in a while, uh, or at least big writing. Um, What was that like uh, to get back out there and, and be a reporter again? I was going to look and see how many years it had been since I've had a byline. I mean, it's been several um, because I've been editing. And I was definitely apprehensive about it, not just because I was writing again, but because I was writing something bigger than anything I've ever done and something that is so important, not just to me, but to the newspaper. And, you know, there was just a lot writing on this on so many levels. And I was definitely rusty. I think I was even more rusty, um, like with interviewing. I think my interviewing skills were pretty terrible. I just for kind of forgot how to do it. Um, but when I sat down to the right, um, that came, that was as easy and as hard as it always was, I think. Did it make you want to get back out there and do more reporting or make you want to work more as an editor? I really love um, editing. Uh, it's funny. I mean, everyone says, oh, but you're such a good writer. You should write more. 
But I find writing so incredibly painful and stressful that I almost like flinch from it, you know, like it's just so agonizing for me. And, um, I, and when I'm editing, I just really feel like I'm able to help and I just feel pretty relaxed and, and good all the time. So, um, editing is kind of my, my safe place, but I think I'm going to do some combination, you know, going forward. I think Pamela Koloff said the, the almost the same thing in our last podcast uh, when she said that she wishes she could just go out and do all the reporting and then have a dinner party and stand up and just tell the story and not have right. to write it at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, when you're all done, you've got this, this great this great work, and it's it's like having a little souvenir, and that's really wonderful. And you know, I can Google myself and think about all the things that I've written. But when you God, when you're living inside of it, it's just agonizing. And and so scary. Ugh. Now, one, one thing that uh, people have asked me to ask the writers we talk with is, is where do they get story ideas from? And obviously, this one's kind of obvious. Um, <laughs> but but when you were working as a reporter, you know, where did you find story ideas? And, and what do you tell the reporters you work with? Obviously, you work with reporters who are pretty good at finding story ideas on their own. But like, what what uh, where, where's always been a great source of uh, story ideas, especially for something narrative. I'm honestly pretty. I think I'm pretty terrible at, at like finding story ideas. I'm not. I don't find ideas in the way that Lane De Gregory finds ideas, which she sees them everywhere. You know, she can go into any bar and come out with a story. I think what I'm good at is shaping an idea. So if somebody brings me a, a, a lousy idea, I can I can help focus it and figure out what the story is really about and sort of find the meaning inside the idea and figure out the right way to tell it. And so I discard a lot of my um, initial ideas. Like I talk myself out of a lot of stories because I am pretty demanding of the idea. I feel like most stories fail at the idea stage because they're not sharp enough. They're just not focused enough. They're just not important or meaningful enough. So I think you can find ideas everywhere, but making the idea into a really good idea takes some thinking. It takes some work. And I, I think I'm pretty good at that. Um, I'm interested in the idea now of, you know, trying to maybe become an expert at something or, you know, I miss, I miss having a beat and having, be thinking deeply about a topic rather than being such a generalist, I think that would help me develop more story ideas, like more interesting story ideas. I think it's very, very hard to be general assignment and just float. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, it was a great story, and, and hopefully we can even get a few more people to read it. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks. We've been talking with Kelly Benham French of the Tampa Bay Times. Her story, Never Let Go, was published in three parts back in December. We've linked to the stories on our website, www.gangrythepodcast.com. You'll find the stories along with some amazing photo galleries as well. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter, at gangrypodcast. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. 
We also have a website. It's www.gangreadthepodcast.com where you can read all of the stories that we've discussed with their writers. Join us next time when we talk with Stephen Roderick. Roderick wrote the story, Here is What Happens When You Cast Lindsay Lohan in Your Movie. The story was published in the January 10th issue of the New York Times Magazine and chronicles the making of the film, The Canyons. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University. This episode was produced by Glenn Battishill. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. I'm your host, Matt Tullis.